Hi, and welcome back to Storytime for Squirrels, a periodic podcast for the pandemic. I'm your host, Bill. Storytime for Squirrels is an unofficial math podcast in which I sit on my couch with my dog in my lap and tell you a story. If there's a story you want to hear, let me know and I will read it to you. Today's story is Accident by Agatha Christie. It was originally published in 1929 under the title The Uncrossed Path. It doesn't have any of her, of Agatha Christie's famous detectives, no Hercule Poirot, no Miss Marple, but it is a delightful tale nonetheless. this it's the same woman not a doubt of it captain haydock looked into the eager vehement face of his friend and sighed he wished evans would not be so positive and so jubilant in the course of a career spent at sea the old sea captain had learned to leave things that did not concern him well alone his friend evans late cid inspector had a different philosophy of life Acting on information received had been his motto in early days, and he had improved upon it to the extent of finding out his own information. Inspector Evans had been a very smart, wide-awake officer and had justly earned the promotion which had been his. Even now, when he had retired from the force and had settled down in the country cottage of his dreams, his professional instinct was still active. Don't often forget a face, he reiterated complacently. Mrs. Anthony. Yes, it's Mrs. Anthony, right enough. When you said Mrs. Merrodine, I knew her at once. Captain Haydock stirred uneasily. The Merrodines were his nearest neighbors, barring Evans himself, and this identifying of Mrs. Merrodine with a former heroine of a cause celeb distressed him. It's a long time ago, he said rather weakly. Nine years said Evans, accurately as ever. Nine years and three months. You remember the case? In a vague sort of way. Anthony turned out to be an arsenic eater, said Evans. So they acquitted her. Well, why shouldn't they? No reason in the world. Only verdict they could give on the evidence. Absolutely correct. Then that's all right, said Haydock. Then I don't see what we're bothering about. Who's bothering? I thought you were. Not at all. The thing's over and done with, summed up the captain. If Mrs. Barrowdine at one time of her life was unfortunate enough to be tried and acquitted for murder. It's not usually considered unfortunate to be acquitted, put in Evans. You know what I mean, said Captain Haydock irritably. If the poor lady has been through that harrowing experience, it's no business of ours to rake it up, is it? Evans did not answer. Come now, Evans. The lady was innocent. You've just said so. I didn't say she was innocent. I said she was acquitted. It's the same thing. Not always. Captain Haydock, who had commenced to tap his pipe out against the side of his chair, stopped, 
and sat up with a very alert expression. Hello, 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 he said. The wind's in that quarter, is it? You think she wasn't innocent? I wouldn't say that. I just don't know. Anthony was in the habit of taking arsenic. His wife got it for him. One day, by mistake, he takes far too much. Was the mistake his or his wife's? Nobody could tell, and the jury, very properly, gave her the benefit of the doubt. That's all quite right, and I'm not finding fault with it. All the same, I'd like to know. Captain Haydock transferred his attention to his pipe once more. Well, he said comfortably, it's none of our business. I'm not so sure, but surely, listen to me a minute. This man, Merodine, in his laboratory this evening, fiddling round with tests, you remember? Yes, he mentioned Marsh's test for arsenic, said you would know all about it. It was in your line, and chuckled. He wouldn't have said that if he'd thought for one moment, Evans interrupted him. You mean he wouldn't have said that if he knew? They've been married how long? Six years, you told me? I bet you anything he has no idea his wife is the once notorious Mrs. Anthony. And he will certainly not know it from me, said Captain Haydock stiffly. Evans paid no attention but went on. You interrupted me just now. After Marsh's test, Merodine heated a substance in a test tube. The metallic residue he dissolved in water and then precipitated it by adding silver nitrate. There was a test for chlorates. A neat, unassuming little test. But I chanced to read these words in a book that stood open on the table. H2SO4 decomposes chlorates with evolution of Cl4O2. If heated, violent explosions occur. The mixture ought therefore to be kept cool and only very small quantities used. Haydock stared at his friend. Well, what about it? Just this. In my profession, we've got tests, too. Tests for murder. There's adding up the facts, weighing them, dissecting the residue when you've allowed for prejudice and the general inaccuracy of witnesses. But there's another test of murder, one that is fairly accurate, but rather dangerous. A murderer is seldom content with one crime. Give him time and a lack of suspicion, and he'll commit another. You catch a man, has he murdered his wife or hasn't he? Perhaps the case isn't very black against him. Look into his past. If you find that he's had several wives, and that they've all died, shall we say, rather curiously, then you know I'm not speaking legally, you understand. I'm speaking of moral certainty. Once you know, you can go ahead looking for evidence. Well, I'm coming to the point. That's all right if there is a past to look into. But suppose you catch your murderer at his or her first crime. Then that test will be one from which you get no reaction. But suppose the prisoner was acquitted, starting life under another name... Will or will not the murderer repeat the crime? That's a horrible idea. Do you still say it's none of our business? Yes, I do. You've no reason to think that Mrs. Merodine is anything but a perfectly innocent woman. The ex-inspector was silent for a moment. Then he said slowly, I told you that we looked into her past and found nothing. That's not quite true. 
there was a stepfather. As a girl of 18, she had a fancy for some young man, and her stepfather exerted his authority to keep them apart. She and her stepfather went for a walk along a rather dangerous part of the cliff. There was an accident. The stepfather went too near the edge. It gave way, and he went over and was killed. You don't think. It was an accident. Accident. Anthony's overdose of arsenic was an accident. She'd never have been tried if it hadn't transpired that there was another man. He sheared off, by the way, looked as though he weren't satisfied, even if the jury were. I tell you, Haydock, where that woman is concerned, I'm afraid of another accident. The old captain shrugged his shoulders. It's been nine years since that affair. Why should there be another accident, as you call it now? I didn't say now. I said some day or other, if the necessary motive arose... Captain Haydock shrugged his shoulders. Well, I don't know how you're going to guard against that. Neither do I, said Evans ruefully. I should leave well alone, said Captain Haydock. No good ever came of butting into other people's affairs. But that advice was not palatable to the ex-inspector. He was a man of patience but determination. Taking leave of his friend, he sauntered down to the village, revolving in his mind the possibilities of some kind of successful action. Turning into the post office to buy some stamps, he ran into the object of his solicitude, George Merodine. The ex-chemistry professor was a small, dreamy-looking man, gentle and kindly in manner, and usually completely absent-minded. He recognized the other and greeted him amicably, stooping to recover the letters that the impact had caused him to drop on the ground. Evans stooped also, and, more rapid in his movements than the other, secured them first, handing them back to their owner with an apology. He glanced down at them in doing so, and the address on the topmost suddenly awakened all his suspicions anew. It bore the name of a well-known insurance firm. Instantly, his mind was made up. The guileless George Merodine hardly realized how it came about that he and the ex-inspector were strolling down the village together, and still less could he have said how it came about that the conversation should come round to the subject of life insurance. Evans had no difficulty in attaining his object. Merodine, of his own accord, volunteered the information that he had just insured his life for his wife's benefit and asked Evans's opinion on the company in question. I made some rather unwise investments, he explained. As a result, my income has diminished. If anything were to happen to me, my wife would be left very badly off. This insurance will put things right. She didn't object to the idea, inquired Evans casually. Some ladies do, you know, feel it's unlucky, that sort of thing. Oh, Margaret is very practical, said Merodine, smiling, not at all superstitious. In fact, I believe it was her idea originally. She didn't like my being so worried. Evans had got the information he wanted. He left the other shortly afterwards, and his lips were set in a grim line. The late Mr. Anthony had insured his life in his wife's favor a few weeks before his death. Accustomed to rely on his instincts, he was perfectly sure in his own mind. But how to act was another matter. 
He wanted not to arrest a criminal red-handed, but to prevent a crime being committed, and that was a very different and a very much more difficult thing. All day he was very thoughtful. There was a Primrose League fete that afternoon held in the grounds of the local squire, and he went to it, indulging in the penny dip, guessing the weight of a pig, and shying at coconuts all with the same look of abstracted concentration on his face. He even indulged in half a crown's worth of Zara the Crystal Gazer, smiling a little to himself as he did so, remembering his own activities against fortune-tellers in his official days. He did not pay very much heed to her sing-song, droning voice, till the end of a sentence held his attention. And you will very shortly, very shortly indeed, be engaged on a matter of life or death, life or death to one person. Eh? What's that? he asked abruptly. A decision. You have a decision to make. You must be very careful, very, very careful. If you were to make a mistake, the smallest mistake... Yes? The fortune teller shivered. Inspector Evans knew it was all nonsense, but he was nevertheless impressed. I warn you, you must not make a mistake. If you do, I see the result clearly. A death. Odd. Damned odd. A death. Fancy her lighting upon that. If I make a mistake, a death will result. Is that it? Yes. In that case, said Evans, rising to his feet and handing over half a crown, I mustn't make a mistake, eh? He spoke lightly enough, but as he went out of the tent, his jaw set determinedly. Easy to say. Not so easy to be sure of doing. He mustn't make a slip. A life, a valuable human life, depended on it. And there was no one to help him. He looked across at the figure of his friend Haydock in the distance. No help there. Leave things alone, was Haydock's motto, and that wouldn't do here. Haydock was talking to a woman. She moved away from him and came toward Evans, and the inspector recognized her. It was Mrs. Merodine. On an impulse, he put himself deliberately in her path. Mrs. Merodine was rather a fine-looking woman. She had a broad, serene brow, very beautiful brown eyes, and a placid expression. She had the look of an Italian Madonna, which she heightened by parting her hair in the middle and looping it over her ears. She had a deep, rather sleepy voice. She smiled up at Evans, a contented, welcoming smile. I thought it was you, Mrs. Anthony. I mean, Mrs. Merodine, he said glibly. He made the slip deliberately, watching her without seeming to do so. He saw her eyes widen, heard the quick intake of her breath. But her eyes did not falter. She gazed at him steadily and proudly. I was looking for my husband, she said quietly. Have you seen him anywhere about? He was over in that direction when I last saw him. They went side by side in the direction indicated, chatting quietly and pleasantly. The inspector felt his admiration mounting. What a woman! What self-command! What wonderful poise! A remarkable woman, and a very dangerous one. He felt sure, a very dangerous one. He still felt very uneasy, though he was satisfied with his initial step. 
He had let her know that he recognized her. That would put her on guard. She would not dare attempt anything rash. There was the question of Merodine, if he could be warned. They found the little man absently contemplating a china doll, which had fallen to his share in the penny dip. His wife suggested going home, and he agreed eagerly. Mrs. Merodine turned to the inspector. "'Won't you come back with us and have a quiet cup of tea, Mr. Evans?' Was there a faint note of challenge in her voice? He thought there was. "'Thank you, Mrs. Merodine. I should like to very much.' They walked there, talking together of pleasant, ordinary things. The sun shone, a breeze blew gently. Everything around them was pleasant and ordinary. Their maid was out at the fete, Mrs. Merodine explained, when they arrived at the charming old-world cottage. She went into her room to remove her hat, returning to set out tea and boil the kettle on a little silver lamp. From a shelf near the fireplace, she took three small bowls and saucers. We have some very special Chinese tea, she explained, and we always drink it in the Chinese manner, out of bowls, not cups. She broke off, peered into a cup, and exchanged it for another with an exclamation of annoyance. George, it's too bad of you. You've been taking these bowls again. I'm sorry, dear, said the professor apologetically. They're such a convenient size. The ones I ordered haven't come. One of these days you'll poison us all, said his wife with a half laugh. Mary finds them in the laboratory and brings them back here and never troubles to wash them out unless there's anything very noticeable in them. Why, you were using one of them for potassium cyanide the other day. Really, George, it's frightfully dangerous. Merodine looked a little irritated. Mary's no business to remove things from the laboratory. She's not to touch anything there. But we often leave our teacups there after tea. How is she to know? Be reasonable, dear. The professor went into his laboratory, murmuring to himself, and with a smile Mrs. Merodine poured boiling water on the tea and blew out the flame of the little silver lamp. Evans was puzzled, yet a glimmering of light penetrated to him. For some reason or other, Mrs. Merodine was showing her hand. Was this to be the accident? Was she speaking of all this so as deliberately to prepare her alibi beforehand? so that when one day the accident happened, he would be forced to give evidence in her favor? Stupid of her, if so, because before that, suddenly he drew in his breath. She had poured the tea into three bowls. One she set before him, one before herself, the other she placed on a little table by the fire near the chair that her husband usually sat in. And it was as she placed this last one on the table by her husband's chair that a little strange smile curved round her lips. It was the smile that did it. He knew. A remarkable woman, a dangerous woman. No waiting, no preparation. This afternoon, this very afternoon, with him here as witness. The boldness of it took his breath away. It was clever. It was damnably clever. He would be able to prove nothing. She counted on his not suspecting, simply because it was so soon. A woman of lightning rapidity of thought and action. He drew a deep breath and leaned forward. Mrs. Merodine, I'm a man of queer whims. Will you be very kind and indulge me in one of them? She looked inquiring, but unsuspicious. He rose, 
took the bowl from in front of her and crossed to the little table where he substituted it for the other. This other he brought back and placed in front of her. I want to see you drink this, your husband's cup of tea. Her eyes met his. They were steady, unfathomable. The color slowly drained from her face. She stretched out her hand, raised the cup. He held his breath, supposing all along he had made a mistake. She raised it to her lips. At the last moment, with a shudder, she leaned forward and quickly poured it into a pot containing a fern. Then she sat back and gazed at him defiantly. He drew a long sigh of relief and sat down again. Well, she said. Her voice had altered. It was slightly mocking, defiant. He answered her soberly and quietly. You are a very clever woman, Mrs. Merodine. I think you understand me. There must be no repetition. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Her voice was even, devoid of expression. He nodded his head, satisfied. She was a clever woman and didn't want to be hanged. To your long life and to that of your husband, he said significantly and raised his tea to his lips. Then his face changed. It contorted horribly. He tried to rise, to cry out. His body stiffened. His face went purple. He fell back, sprawling over the chair. His limbs convulsed. Mrs. Merodine leaned forward, watching him. A little smile crossed her lips. She spoke to him, very softly and gently. You made a mistake, Mr. Evans. You thought I wanted to kill George? How stupid of you. How very stupid. She sat there a minute longer, looking at the dead man, the third man who had threatened to cross her path and separate her from the man she loved. Her smile broadened. She looked more than ever like a Madonna. Then she raised her voice and called, George, George, oh, do come here. I'm afraid there's been the most dreadful accident. Poor Mr. Evans.'